transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. And if you're lucky enough to be in the mountain desert west this week, this month, with snow-dusted mountains all around and the sun shining in a crisp blue sky. Well, you have paid for the sins of the summer and this is your reward. Moaning wind on a November night. The first sweet chill of autumn. And just like that, before you ever thought about getting up on the gravel roof and putting the cover over the swamp cooler, it's cold. Here around Joshua Tree in Yucca Valley in Pioneer Town this week, we woke to snow on the mountains, a snow-covered San Gorgonio so recently on fire. And that light desert dusting you get on the lower hills or around the pinyon juniper tree line where the pinions meet the Joshua trees, boulders and black brush. Is there a more beautiful kind of wild land in the world? Everybody's got their favorite, so I don't want to imply that one favorite landscape is better than another. It's just my favorite, and it might be yours. Walking around, breathing that fresh, cool air, clean, damp sand in the washes and patches of clean, white snow in the shade of the Joshua trees. Watching the dog delight in the fact that it's not only cool out, but there's some snow to nose around in, even roll around in if there's a big enough patch. Up in Missoula, they were digging out of the snow that morning. Ski season was about to start up at Mountain High in the Southern California mountains, but then a worker got the Rona and they had to delay that a bit. All across the Mountain West, though, the good news arrived. The seasonal good news, anyway. Let's think about another time. Let's think about the later decades of the 19th century. The year 1887, 133 years ago now, Another lonesome child was born in this strange and still mostly wild country. Cincinnati was the place, a boom town on the Ohio River. 
It wasn't long since one of the deadliest and most destructive riots in American history, the courthouse riots of 18 and 84. The Civil War was only two decades in the past, the California gold rush was over, and the nation had grown to 50 million souls, many of them hungry, most of them feeling like they'd been had. The late 1800s were a strange time, like all times in America, unsettled and angry, with the usual populations taking the brunt of it, the poor, as always. The emancipated slaves and defeated American Indians, especially. Veterans of the war between the states on both sides, of course, veterans always get it. Each wave of new immigrants, too, Chinese railroad workers, Japanese and Portuguese fishermen, Irish house servants and hookers. There were massacres, mostly of Native Americans and occasionally of U.S. Calvary. Massacres of labor protesters at Haymarket Square. There were pandemics and great fires in the squalid cities. The Old West legends became legends as they were killed off one by one. Wild Bill Hickok in Deadwood, Billy the Kid in New Mexico, Jesse James in Missouri. Every decade there was another national or global financial collapse. Along with exciting new technologies and new business monopolies that would supposedly make the world a better place. It was a big country, impossible to govern and impossible to keep the crooks out as there were few in power foolish enough to operate in good faith. In 1876, Samuel J. Tilden had been elected president, or so it seemed. But there was a riot in the Electoral College. With only two days remaining before the new president was to be sworn in, per the Constitution, and after months of lawsuits, alleged scandals, and angry demonstrations over the contested results from four states, Rutherford B. Hayes was appointed president. on the condition that the southern states should be immediately released from Reconstruction. The nation and the world, as ever in our industrial age, was filled with woe. But a person of no means, of no name, could still show up in a mining camp somewhere in the territories and maybe get a second or third or last chance. The lonesome child born in 1887 was an orphan. One of 255,000 souls in a city that 50 years earlier had only 2,500. Near the turn of the century, most likely 1899, 
The boy and child ran away from a foster home and headed west. In a time before your every movement was tracked and recorded by the device you willingly carried night and day, it was easy to disappear completely. Where someone spent their formative years was mostly a matter of personal narrative. The people who lived and worked in railroad camps and mining towns and busy ports could make their own stories about themselves, and they did. The literary works of Mark Twain are rooted in these tales of the uprooted prospectors and con artists and gamblers. Well, this boy, who by age 12 was living as an independent adult, he drifted here and there, all the while studying whatever meager books came his way. Scripture, of course, there was always a Bible around somewhere. And newspapers filled with delightful tales and illustrations of the wider world. You might find a volume of Shakespeare or some poetry collections. And those who could recite monologues and poetry by memory were always welcome at the hobo camp at the fireside. Well, years passed in toil that has lost a time, but around the age of 28, this boy who would go by either Antone or Frank made his way to the Black Mountains of Mojave County in the new American state of Arizona. Here at a mining camp called Oatman that had been producing a little bit here and there for half a century, the new technology was used to strike gold for real. A $10 million find. Frank, or Antone, we don't know what he was calling himself by then, was one of many drifters and laborers who stopped at Oatman and stayed a while long enough for it to become part of his short biography, but he left no lasting mark, and after the men and machines had torn all the then-available gold from those mountains, some $700 million worth in today's inflated dollars, the mines were closed and the remaining workers sent off to the war effort for the Second World War. That's what became a Frank or Antone, although we don't know how long he lived and worked in Oatman or when exactly he left. But if he did not find riches in those mines, he did find love or at least companionship, which is the better of the two in the long run. It was an Oatman that he met and presumably married his wife, as was the unfair custom of so much of the 20th century, she is relegated to a nameless missus in what flimsy records exist today. 
We do know the name of his wartime employer, Douglas Aircraft Company. For the war years and for many years beyond, Antone toiled by day in the manufacturer of bomber planes. As post-war jubilation almost immediately became the endless, teeth-grinding, existential dread of the Cold War and mutually assured nuclear destruction, an even better and more profitable business for the war captains who'd done so well making A-bombs and aircraft carriers, because it never ends. Antone's spiritually corrosive day job began to eat away at him. He was, like most Americans of the late 40s and 1950s, unsatisfied and unsure of how to address it. He wrote poetry, he spoke on scripture and other philosophical topics when asked... But his factory work brought new ideas to mind using new forms of engineering. All around him in the spreading industrial and residential suburbs of Southern California, he saw new buildings going up quickly and cheaply using concrete and thin iron rods. Rebar which gave a poured slab or wall the strength to withstand earthquakes or hurricanes, maybe even atomic war. Blocks of marble were not routinely delivered to working-class defense industry employees. Concrete and rebar, on the other hand, could be had cheaply and delivered right to your driveway in Inglewood. And that's where Frank Anton Martin built his 10-foot statue of Jesus. Five tons of metal sticks and ready mix. And he had somewhere picked up the dubious information that reinforced concrete could stand up to an atomic bombing. In those days, when an abundance of good-paying jobs, for white Americans at least, caused a surge of new amusements for people with ample time off work, the local papers were always looking for local stories of human interest, new fads, new consumer trends. By late 1950, with Frank Anton Martin's giant statue of Jesus complete in his driveway, The newspapers had a funny new subject. Despair over nuclear annihilation had prompted Martin first to build his California version of Christ the Redeemer, and then to find an appropriately American home for the thing. Having lived in the Arizona desert near the Colorado River, the Grand Canyon came to Martin's mind. It was a wonder of the world, a symbol of America. And so this self-trained sculptor got to work on donating his sturdy statue of Christ to the National Park Service for installation on the rim of the Great Canyon. And the plan went nowhere. 
Soon the local papers were describing the unwanted Christ. When Life magazine would get around to the story, the article said the separation of church and state was the reason given by Grand Canyon National Park for refusing his statue. Although there's no evidence it went that far, none that I've seen. While many amateur sculptors have managed to get their crude creations atop local hilltops, especially if they were in the simple shape of a cross, the standards of the National Park Service have generally, if not always, been higher. And they're also supposed to follow the Constitution of the United States. You might recall the decades-long legal battles over an ugly scrap iron cross bolted to a boulder next to Teutonia Peak Trail on Sema Road in what is now Mojave National Preserve. Being the universally recognized symbol of the Christian church, it obviously violated the constitutional separation of church and state and government business. The supporters of the cross came up with the flimsy excuse that it was really a veteran's memorial. Well, asked the world, then why didn't you make a veteran's memorial instead of a Jesus cross? Should we build a 500-foot-tall statue of the devil, naked and anatomically correct, and call it a war memorial? Perhaps we should. At least we'd have the right God involved. Anyway, Martin's great dream had to be downsized. And in the unincorporated high desert of Highway 62 in Southern California's San Bernardino County, a local preacher named Eddie Garver got wind of Martin's dilemma and offered not only a home for the unwanted, enormous concrete Jesus but eventually a home for both Martin and all of his philosophical and artistic ambitions. Reverend Garver homesteaded five acres of Bureau of Land Management property on the south-facing slope of the small settlement people called Yucca Valley. And here he would have his country Bible church and a grand decoration for it, Martin's Concrete Jesus. Oh, it was big news in those days of 19 and 51. Life magazine did not just write a blurb, its editors sent out photographers and reporters to document the entire journey from Anton Martin's Inglewood driveway to the spot in the high desert where Christ would finally rise after all these years. To be fair, he made the whole journey risen, standing upright on a flatbed truck, ropes binding him to the vehicle as it made its slow way through the howling winds of Gorgonio Pass, and then up the steep grade to the Mojave Desert. And then the crowd gathered round, or whatever crowd could be found in 1951 Yucca Valley, and they dragged Jesus Christ up the boulder-strewn mountainside, breaking off his fingers in the process. 
Frank Anton Martin scurried along beside his great creation, patching up the damage with a bucket of ready mix. It was a weekend before Easter. Nobody knows why they could not wait another week. Maybe Life Magazine had other plans. Nevertheless, Martin spoke to the assembled Christians and curious, and then he went home. A year later, this time reportedly on Easter, Martin returned and spoke to the members of Reverend Eddie's Bible Church. This time, perhaps realizing how good the publicity was for a church that was small, even by Yucca Valley standards, Eddie Garver said, come on out and fill this whole hillside with biblical statues. Martin immediately envisioned his favorite scenes from the Gospels rendered in white concrete. Jesus suffering the little children, the Sermon on the Mount, the Last Supper. And so he moved to Yucca Valley, moved to that south-facing slope on what we now call Sunny Slope Drive, and built his sculpture park on the land opposite the church. But the partnership turned sour between Reverend Eddie and Anton Martin. The cause is unclear, but within a few years, Eddie Garver had sold his homesteaded acreage and crewed chapel to another family who wanted to go at the religion business, including the original Big Jesus that was officially on Garver's land, not Martin's adjoining acres. Martin, now in his 70s and weary from a life of toil and wandering, died in 1961. He is buried in the 29 Palm Cemetery, which is weird when the actual monument to his life remains in Yucca Valley. It's called the Desert Christ Park and is in the care of a small nonprofit today. By the turn of our century, this century, Desert Christ Park was in grim condition. The fingers, the least sturdy part of Christ and his disciples, were all in terrible shape. Rusted rebar jetting out of broken and dirty concrete arms. The faces had collapsed on many of the statues and the enormous earthquake of 1992, the Landers Quake, that more or less ran right through the statue garden, made it clear that these statues would not survive the nuclear apocalypse. They would not even survive the bored teenaged vandals who bashed away at the holy figures during the many decades when nobody much gave any thought to Yucca Valley. It sure wasn't on anybody's vacation list. But a dozen years ago or so, modest and somewhat regular work began to repair and maintain the statue park. As I witnessed myself the day after the election, when Brendan Mays and I dropped by after lunch to walk amongst Jesus and his disciples, amidst the Joshua trees and some now mature olive trees planted on the site for a Holy Land feel, The park I saw was cleaner than it has been in many ages. Many of the statues have been patched up and repainted white. There are some marked trails meandering around the figures today, which helps with the terrible erosion that happens every time it rains a few drops around here, which it does every now and again. 
The church next door is quiet, at least on weekdays, and the view of the surrounding little San Bernardino Mountains is lovely. Yucca Valley holds about 25,000 souls now, and not all of them are retirees at death's door. Some people even move here on purpose now. In these strange years when the harsh Mojave Desert is considered beautiful by the younger generations, and when the cities are emptying out due to the plague, and the outrageously expensive real estate, and all the other problems we deal with in our dreary workaday world, Frank Antone Martin lived a singular life, even as he was very much part of the society of his time. Uprooted Americans headed for the fading frontier, working in mining boomtowns and menial labor, and then settling in the biggest boomtown of all, Los Angeles, the city built by a war against faraway Japan. He was a thinking man, and the weight of the world was heavy upon him, as it is for anyone who surveys our human activity and finds it wanting. Finds it nothing more than greed and hate and war and destruction and resource extraction and anxiety. The park is open daily, free to all, sunrise to sunset. It's a peaceful spot in a town that has few such places. Whether you visit it as a curiosity or a place of contemplation, please pick up your cigarette butts and dog waste and sports drink jugs when you depart. You've been listening to Desert Oracle Radio, and I am your host, Ken Lane. The soundscapes you heard during tonight's program were by Red, Blue, Black, Silver. We broadcast from Joshua Tree on KCDZ 107.7 FM, Friday nights across the high desert, 10 to 11 p.m. We have a Patreon that is the sole means of support of this operation. So if you like the show, log in to patreon.com forward slash Desert Oracle or come to our website, desertoracle.com. Click Be a Patron. Our book is going to be out in just a couple of weeks, Desert Oracle Volume 1. You can pre-order it on your favorite book-selling website. doesn't have to be the big A. And our new issue is on sale around town and by mail. Number 9, Desert Oracle. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the good weather and good night from the voice of the desert.